0: Welcome to McGill Cares, a weekly webcast series addressing a wide variety of topics to support family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver who became a certified Alzheimer care consultant and founder of the McGill University Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee this program, which include one of my guests today, my colleague, Dr. José Marais from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, Dr. Serge Gauthier, McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging, and Dr. Gerald Freed, McGill-Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of our donors and sponsors. Before I begin, I would love to just talk about an event that we're having on Wednesday, September 2nd, beginning at 7 p.m. To provide comfort to our community as we face the challenges of COVID, the McGill Dementia Education Program would like to invite you to a free online concert performed by a talented trio of McGill jazz musicians and a fabulous vocalist. Grab your electronic devices, reach out to your loved ones who are at home, in residences, in hospitals, and long-term care facilities, and join myself, Derek Kassoff from University Advancement, Dr. Jose Moret, and Dr. Serge Gauthier for an hour of beautiful music to lift your spirits. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic transitioning a loved one to a residence. My guests are Dr. Jose Moret, who is professor and the director of geriatric medicine at the McGill Faculty of Medicine, McGill University Health Center, and the Jewish General Hospital in addition to being the academic lead of the McGill Dementia Education Program. I would also like to welcome Matt Delvecchio, a certified professional consultant in aging and the host of CJAD's Life Unrehearsed. He founded Liana's Senior Transition Support to help seniors and their families through decisions about where and how they wish to live out their golden years. Welcome to the show, both of you.
1: Thank you, Claire, uh, for the invitation. Good afternoon
0: good afternoon well I'm so happy to have you here because this is a very important topic uh, about this about transitioning a loved one the pandemic has caused really unprecedented times in our in our society and especially with regards to uh, the long-term care centers and families are really going through a lot of anxiety um, let's begin by perhaps let's getting your perspective on what's taken place dr. moret yeah
1: if I may um... I think the healthcare system uh, was prepared uh, for uh, in a hos- in a hospital, acute care setting, management of the cases, but little attention was uh, being dedicated to the CHSLD and residences. Unfortunately, uh, they were not prepared adequately. There was also a lack of uh, equipment, uh, the termination of uh, procedures for separating hot from cold zones, and and and. Also, the attitude towards caregivers, where they were forbidden to have access uh, to the premises, um, you know, all of this has impacted tremendously uh, on on the health and and, and uh, uh, well being of uh, those in, in residences and the families as well. You know.
0: And Matt, I mean, you have experience as well. Most of it in private residence. What is your take on it?
2: Well, I think it was. I think you have to divide it almost into two different aspects infection control protocol and quality of care. And both severely lacked. And we saw that clearly uh, during COVID. And we're trying to address the government's trying to address both aspects of it. And I think we're doing a very good job on the infection control part of it. I think we still have quite a ways to go on the quality of care part of it, but it was very clear, not just in Quebec, around the world, and certainly in Canada, that uh, this was shown a spotlight uh, on CHSLDs, whereas many of the efforts were put into hospitals. So uh, if anything, there's a silver lining that things are starting to improve.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a lot to cover in today's webcast, uh, because there's so many issues and questions that found these deal with when it, when it comes to whether or not it's time has come to transition a loved one. So, I'm going to begin with Dr. Moret. And could you basically explain the evolution of dementia or a similar illness and why it may become impossible for a person to remain at home? And what are also some of the warning signs that it's time to consider a transition?
1: Um. Dementia is a, a, a chronic condition, the the generation, a deterioration of the brain function. So as time passes by, the the the, the destruction of the brain uh, progresses and and the person is losing her or his autonomy. So this needs to be supplied by someone, uh, a loved one or even the community service. But the degree of the loss of autonomy reaches a point where for safety reasons or, or even for other considerations such as behavior because the person is too disorganized to follow any particular commands, uh, the care that they required that requires in fact skilled uh, 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 nursing care makes it almost impossible uh, for the person to remain at home safely and as well as for the caregiver uh, things such as aggressiveness, a um, uh, level of care in which all modalities of feeding, dressing, bathing, incontinence uh, reach a point where the caregiver can, got, can get exhausted, including including when there is support coming from the community, because it's a 24-hours present that is necessary. uh, And there are are things such as uh, disturbance of the uh, uh, sleep cycle uh, and day arousal where the the person is is confused, and and during the night they are awakened, et cetera. This takes a big tool out of the caregiver uh, and you reach a point where uh, it is better for both of them. For the person suffering from dementia, as well as from the caregiver, that this person is uh, now living in in a skilled nursing home, uh, and it makes life m- more easy, much easier for both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Matt, you have a lot of like obviously on the ground experience. You visit families uh, who are currently living at home, and when they have to make those decisions, what you know, can you explain? Can you maybe share a couple of scenarios that you've seen where you you really knew that it was time for someone to make a transition? Yeah,
2: sometimes we call them trigger events, you know, everyone wants to try to stay at home for as long as they can, we understand that. But there are two uh, factors to consider, there's the person being taken care of, and there's also the caregiver or the family of caregivers. And sometimes it becomes really too much for the caregiver. And when I say by trigger events, for example, let's say there was a wandering uh, situation or uh, walked out of the house, you know, that's a trigger event. If there was a slip or a fall, it was difficult to get in and out of a bathtub. If uh, there were things like expired food, left the oven on and not turned off. These are all trigger events where that's when we'll usually get a call from family saying, you know what? Hmm. We uh, we need to really be proactive and start looking at things. Uh, and another trigger event is actually if there's a hospitalization and the doctors are now saying, I don't think mom, dad, grandma, grandpa is safe at home. You may actually have to find a residence right away. Those are reactive, very emotional, very intense situations. So we want to try to avoid that, but that does happen.
0: Okay. I mean, in my practice and from my experience, you know, I work with a lot of families who say, you know what, i made a promise to my loved one that I would never place them in a residence. They made me promise it's in the will or, you know, they made me swear that not, I would never make a pro- I would never break that promise. However, there, the time comes where they may not have a choice. So, you know, Dr. Moret, you know, how can families best deal with, with you know, this accepting the fact that you know, they, they really have no choice because and, and, and breaking this promise?
1: I mean, making a promise, uh, uh, it's a very natural thing because it's made out of love for for the the family member, right? But uh, we we cannot foresee the future and and some of the the progression of the disease is totally unexpected and reach a point which is not uh, viable at home. And what I advise them, even early on in the process of the the disease, is that uh, you can say that uh you you will keep the loved one at home as long as it is possible and feasible because at the end instead of having one patient i end up having two patients you know the mm-hmm. the uh, the person with dementia and the caregiver who is who is exhausted burnt out depressed etc which is not good because the care then becomes affected and the person suffering from dementia is not receiving the care is or she is entitled to. So, the key thing is to say that that, uh, they would keep at home as long as possible. At the same time, the fact that they are placed uh, doesn't mean it's the end of the relationship, uh, because there is is a mourning there, but also the love that we feel can remain forever, even though they are not physically beside us. And in fact, my opinion is, if the caregiver is rested in good disposition, when they go and visit, they have much more quality time than if they are there exhausted day after day and and and, and totally incapable of dealing with the demands of the disease that is now very advanced. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Matt, can you add anything? Because you must have to go through this all the time with families. Right. And,
2: and we get that exact scenario, Claire, where there's a promise made. And the role of the doctor actually is quite important at, at this stage, because the opinion of the doctor should supersede any promises that were done in the past. And that sometimes that helps the adult daughter or the son saying this. And yes, I, I know we've said this and we have promised, but it is now out of my hands, it's the doctor saying that you need mm-hmm. to uh, get a safer environment, proper care. And that takes a little pressure on, on the children because you don't want to get into a scenario where you, you are trying to put me into a home and we get that. But sometimes the role of the doctor can be very, very important.
0: Mm -hmm. I I say that a lot to the families that I work with, like you get to a point where you really need to rely on, on the doctor, it's the doctor that has to help not only make the decision with regards to whether transition, but you really need to rely on the doctor to make that decision about to stop driving or to have somebody else take over the finances and I don't think people realize the importance of leaning on someone like Dr. Moreau, who or whatever doctor is following a, a loved one. Um, I also think that there's probably a big fear factor with regards to transitioning, you know, I, the thought of moving, that it's overwhelming, you know, my things, you know, even for people who may not suffer from dementia but realize they, they do need, the time has come to transition for, for perhaps mobility reasons or they live alone. And then how do we address that fear factor of, of, of moving? Matt, maybe you could begin with that.
2: Sure, and, and that's a big part of it. And, and there's two, two things that I'd like to address. Think about the generation moving into residences now, most likely in your 80s, maybe 70s, 90s. When they grew up, there was no such thing as a senior living industry. They only thought of nursing homes and a very dark environment. It was a negative thought throw in COVID and everything that's happening now, that fear factor is is now increased. And so this is why we always try to be proactive with the family and even get on tours, even go see the residences, talk to the director of cares and see what will be done. And then you start to realize, you know, fear is lack of knowledge very often. And all of a sudden, once you start arming yourself with more knowledge and and seeing what's out there, that's not going to eliminate the fear, but it will certainly help address it.
0: So I'm gonna ask you now, what's the difference between a public residence and a private residence?
2: Uh, It could be very confusing. I get asked this question all the time. I I want to start by addressing this by saying, let's define residence, okay? Because there's really two types of residences. There's long-term care homes, CHSLDs, Centre d'hébergement et de soins de longue durée, long-term care, but there's a whole other Uh, what they call RPA, Residence pour Privé, eh, Residence pour Privé um, which means, Residence Privé pour means this is for autonomous and semi-autonomous residences. In fact, there are a lot more people in RPAs than CHSLD. In fact, there's four times more RPAs. The reason why I'm mentioning this is There are many people living with Alzheimer's um, or cognitive issues that are living in RPAs. They may still have good mobility, um, but not at a point to be in a CHSLD. So it's one factor that I want to bring up that there's this whole other senior living industry that's expanding, adapting to the needs of people with all types of needs, physical and cognitive. Once we get into long-term care, by the way, RPAs are only private. There's no such thing as a public autonomous or semi-autonomous, they're all private. When we're talking public residences, now we're talking CHSLDs or long-term care. And very quickly, CHSLDs are divided into three. There's government-run establishments where you need to go through the CLSC and get placed into a government-run CHSLD. Um, The government at a certain point in time said, okay, we need more help. And what they've done is they've got some private companies running these residences. okay? So they have exact same protocol, exact same pricing, still have to go through the CLSC. So you've got government run, private run, and then you have private CHSLDs. okay? So you don't go through the CLSC to get into these private CHSLDs. As an example in the province of Quebec, there's only about 40 of the 440 uh, CHSLDs are actually private, but they're classified into those three categories.
0: Okay, and how does it, how does it, because I think the population, you know, cannot afford to get to the private care, and we'll talk about, you know, the average cost afterwards, but so how do people get into the public long-term care?
2: Right, so it is all managed through the CLSC, so the public health care system in, in uh Quebec you go through the CLSC the process is you would normally get an assessment done of a family member uh, that's done by a CLSC uh, caseworker social worker that would do the assessment and then they would uh, do get a grade if you will. and if they are um, if they meet the eligibility to get into a long-term care residence, then they will ask the family okay which residence would you like your mom or dad to go to and then you select that residence and now you would be on a waiting list to get into that long-term care home. So that could be a year, two years. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately with COVID, the waiting list has come down uh, for long-term care in the public system, but there will still be what they call a transition bed. So what happens if you're not at home or if you're not in the hospital and they don't have that permanent bed ready for you in the long-term care home, you will go into what they call a transition bed until a permanent placement
1: Becomes available,
0: Dr. Maha can you explain your role in helping families? Then, like uh, connecting with the CLSC, or how does that work?
1: Yes, I mean to uh, complement some of the information that Matt uh, delivered, um, the, the person, the, the caregiver, for example, can herself uh, uh, contact the CLSC uh, and request uh, for the evaluation, etc. Or else, is the the, uh, the healthcare professional? Uh, Let's say the, the family physician or the geriatrician, et cetera, that can put a request for that evaluation to take place. And uh, indeed, uh, they have an assessment by a uh, occupation therapist, physiotherapist, the social worker, and they determine the level of the intensity of the care that is re- re- required. Um, and uh, based on that, they either go to CHSLD, and there is also what they call a resource intermédiaire, which the, the all is based on the estimation of the number of hours of nursing care which is the day-to-day care that they require and and the decision is taken then Um, we assist uh, after that with uh, a a form we need to fill a medical form that uh, provides information on the past medical history and 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 medications and and some other uh, pertinent information and what, what the evaluation of the, the, the social worker OTPT or, or occupation therapist, physiotherapist, and that of the physician, then uh, they, they, they have all the documentation to proceed with the placement. Uh, and as mentioned, because the difficulty of finding the, the, the availability in, in the first choice of the family, let's say, then they go into transition. And eventually to the final uh, uh, choice that they have made. Again, considering that that the residence in question or the long-term care facility in question meets the requirement of care, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in semi-autonomous, uh, they provide just basic. Uh, uh, support and and services such as having medication being delivered, you know, supervised or or food being made but not necessarily feeding the person, not necessarily uh, uh, washing, bathing the person, uh, then at that level they require higher uh, level of care and and, uh, then the usual private RPA level uh, SME autonomous doesn't suffice. It's why these evaluations are so pertinent to determine the level of care.
0: It sounds so incredibly overwhelming. I mean, I I've been through it, and I remember how how overwhelming it was. And I'm so I'm assuming now that it's really the so the role of the social worker that will help the family navigate this journey, um, yeah. you know, going forward. So, uh, Matt. Uh, can you give us a you know a ballpark idea? I mean obviously when it comes to dementia there aren't that many residences that can accommodate a person from the beginning until the end of the, the, the journey but what would be an approximate you know cost of care to, be, to have somebody in a, in a private residence right now?
2: Yeah, maybe I should uh, for the public it's actually very easy no matter where you are in Quebec a private room in a CHSLD it's the same price $1946.70 That's what it is, and sometimes it will go up uh, annually, rate of inflation or what have you. But let's, for all intents and purposes, say uh, approximately $2,000. And by the way, there are systems in place publicly. If you can't even afford that, then there's a system mechanism in place where you ask for a subsidy, and uh, they will never charge you more than the income you're bringing in. In fact, they'll also leave a little bit of income for, for extra expenses. Now. In the private sector, there's a big range of pricing, depending on, it comes down to the size of the accommodation, uh, if there's meals involved, and of course, care. So in RPAs, regular private residences in autonomous or semi-autonomous, and by the way, just to expand on Dr. Moray, the general rule of thumb is once you exceed three hours of care in an RPA, That's usually the number, it varies by uh, by residence, but once it exceeds three hours, then it usually becomes a CHSLD situation. You know, it's not written in stone, but just to give everyone a general idea. Um, But you can have a one bedroom um, um, apartment in an RPA for as low as 12 or $1,300 a month. And then it starts going up depending on if you need meals, if you require assistance, perhaps with bathing and getting dressed, and, and then it can start to go up. Um, In a private CHSLD situation, long-term care, it's going to range between $4,500 to $5,500 per month, just to give everyone an idea. And so that's compared to that $2,000 per month in the public system. Why are people still interested in private? Well, usually it's because of convenience, because of geography, because you don't wanna be on the wait list. And so um, you have that private option. And we're actually quite fortunate in Quebec because For example, in Ontario, you don't have that private option. You must go through the public health care system.
0: Now, what is how would you compare the cost of a private residence versus having like for those people who say no, I'm gonna I want to take care of my loved one, have them at home as long as possible, knowing that as for instance dementia evolves, you will need end up, you will end up having to have somebody there most likely full time. So what would be the difference in cost of care, home care support versus private?
2: very good question we get that all the time and what we see is it sort of progresses normally you're at home levels of care start to increase you may get some clsc help now which is no charge you want to try to really advocate to try to get some home care services at home sometimes that's topped off by private home care services sometimes people will hire full-time caregiver people so the way to look at it is if you're looking at a few hours a day of care at home, two, three, four hours, it's always more economical to be at home. This still doesn't address whether the care, the right care is being provided, they're in the right home environment, and if the caregiver is able to provide the proper care. But strictly financial speaking, once we start getting into one and two shifts, two eight-hour shifts a day or 24-7 care situations, it's from a financial perspective, it's always better off to go into a, a residence at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then you have to weigh the other factors about the caregiver and their health, um, because you are going to really relieve their uh, their uh, health issues as well.
0: So Dr. Morel, what would you recommend to families who are then considering uh, transitioning a loved one into residence? What should they be looking for? Uh, when, you know, if they do have a loved one who has dementia and or and who needs well, a lot of care, what, what should they look for in a residence? Um,
1: it's a very individual uh, choice and, and and every case can be different because we as mentioned at the early uh, at the beginning of of uh, this webcast, it depends on the characteristics of the the, the patient uh, or the person suffering from dementia as well as the caregiver. Uh, uh, there is a third factor that is the resources available, but let's say for the same level of uh, resources, uh, the, the, the characteristics of the patient itself, himself, uh, that, that as behavioral issues, that the level of care is uh, at the maximum, you know, uh, they, they, they cannot uh, think of sending a person to a private residence whose uh, services is minimal. You know, uh, they really have to think of high-level uh, nursing home, uh, say, uh, level, be it private or public. At that level of care, there is standards of care, and the public system is as good as, according to me, as good as is the private uh, uh, sector, but the difference sometimes of the environment, which more embellished and, and more uh, agreeable in appearance. But the quality of the care is very similar because it depends how good are their their, um, their PABs or, or uh, the persons dedicated to the daily care? And we we have seen during the COVID the impact of uh, this uh, trained staff to deal with the basic uh, uh, self care. You know, so that's the and the the, uh, the caregivers to be uh, uh, reassured that the basic care is being provided. And this is what the person is in need of. It's no longer necessarily the decoration, you know. Uh, uh, but rather, do they have proper uh, food, uh, attention being given, uh, providing uh, dressing and attitude, you know, caring attitude for which uh, it, it makes a big difference. Is at that level. And not so much the color of the walls, uh, as I, I tell mm-hmm. them, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, Matt, do you want to add something to that?
1: Yeah, that was
2: very true, and and uh, um, we saw with COVID, uh, there was you know, COVID affected all CHSLDs, whether it was government run, whether it was privately run. Um, so it really does come down to the level of care. They have to meet the same criteria, right? It's if in order to get the CHSLD certification, they're all following the same protocol. So from a care perspective, it will be care. Sometimes. Um, It really does come down to the environment, like Dr. Moray says, and people have a certain preferential for a a non-institutional looking perhaps, but from a quality of care perspective, you will see the relatively the
1: same standards. We'll some about of the, this yes. So go ahead. So was just going. Some of the choice uh, is also based on convenience. You know how far you are from the where your loved one would be uh, uh, living for, for for the next couple of years. Uh, uh, and then there is the the cost, obviously, because we all have some limitations on how much we can expend. But th- this brings me to to some of these movies we have seen. The person in the most dependent state, but staying at home because they had financial resources to pay uh, a nursing care uh, three shifts a day. At that level, you have to have a budget of $200,000 a year available to support three shifts a day, uh, and and all of the other uh, services to be provided, which is not accessible to most people. It's why the public system is the solution, and the government is now paying much more attention to to the quality of that care, because they were under-resourced, and we saw that during the COVID in which they they, they had to have uh, uh, staff moved between residences to cover each other and the consequences that we know. So with the new uh, 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 arrival of about uh, 8,000 new uh, PABs, um, we think that we can uh, compensate for this lack, and then is the training. These persons, they should be uh, trained to understand uh, the situation of this very dependent residents who are not only physically not capable of doing certain things, but also cognitively impaired and uh, cope with their uh, behavior uh, difficulties, etc. And and this can make the the life of the residents much more uh, you know uh, agreeable and and worth living.
0: So the next Next question is really about, you know, so supposing I make the decision to transition a loved one into a residence, how often should I be there? I mean, do I need to be present every day? I mean, I remember when my mom was in the residence, I would see some family members coming every day, spending six to eight hours a day, and then, you know, actually burning out from coming to spend so much time in residence. You know, Matt and Dr. Marais, based on your experience, I mean, how often should a person visit or...
2: Yeah, we, we get that question uh, quite a bit and there's no real um, answer in stone. I think what's very important in this uh, situation is to have a heart-to-heart with from the family and the director of care of the residents. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. If it's more physical, if you're going to um, say, a long-term care home and you have more physical needs, um, then it's a little less sensitive. You know, you can see the family member a little more often. If we're dealing in a situation with Alzheimer's or dementia, a cognitive issue, it's it's time to talk to the director of care because I've seen both strategies work and been recommended. One strategy is don't show up for the first few days. Let mom or dad get adjusted. Don't see the family member and they end up getting adjusted. I've had other situations where the director of care, knowing the situation much better saying, you know what, it might be better for you to be present for the initial transition. So um, I highly recommend, instead of guessing, have that conversation with the director of care. They're doing these transitions all the time. They're very, very accustomed to that and uh, you should rely heavily on on their expertise and how they've done it in the past and with the family's input about
1: your, your particular loved one situation um i i think that matt presented the situation very clearly i would add that uh it's not necessary to go and see the person every day um, um it depends how advanced the disease is uh, as they they are more cognizant uh and capable of interacting the most the more they benefit from the presence of the loved one as the disease progresses it becomes uh less uh, a, a re- requirement from from the the caregiver, the loved one, to go and be present in there. Uh, At the same time, I I think that visits uh, have a very positive effect uh, on on the the residents, uh, the person suffering from dementia, as well as for the system. (laughs) Somehow, the presence of a family has a positive uh, effect on on improving the the attention, improving the level of of the, the services, feeling that uh, this person has as someone uh, that can defend them against the system, uh, because the pressure on the system is, is such that sometimes the professionals defend the system mo- more than the reason why the system exists, which is the patient. And I leave this in the acute care. And I think there is similar situations in the long term care as well. An example was uh, forbidding uh, uh, caregivers to access long term care facilities. Uh, that required, a, at a point in time, an intervention by government to say it can be feasible if we take certain uh, sanitary measures. You know, so I, I think I think that um, seeing a person on regular basis is fine, without necessarily requesting that it should be on daily basis.
0: And I think, uh, you know, from talking from my own experience, I think quality was more important than quantity because, you know, I was caring for my three children and trying to find time to visit my mom. But I I was always trying to, when I was there, take her outside for some fresh air or, you know, I mean, music played a very important role in her life. So just spending some time, I would bring my phone and listen, put earplugs in her ears. But, you know, I think oftentimes I would say, oh, I'm not staying long enough. but But when I was there when I communicate with her anymore, I just try to do some stimulating activities uh, with her. But I think that's something that people struggle with often that how long can I stay? Um, could you talk about maybe uh, Dr. Moha? What, what are the current government protocols that are required right now to visit in residences due to COVID are, and also are there transitions taking place to the residences still or is that on hold? Do you, are you aware?
1: Um, we have noticed, uh, that, uh, uh, the transfers from acute care to long-term care have restarted. Um, uh, the, the, there has been a lot of changes in CHSFD in which there is uh, more emphasis being put in, in having a person per room rather than three and four. Um, uh, and, and uh, the sanitary measures are now more established and we have to you know we have to accept them because uh, the virus has not disappeared but i think the communication between family members and uh, the different uh, offices regulating these these uh, residences uh, have improved tremendously because we all realize that we want the best for these very dependent older persons because they are older for the most part suffering from from impairments physical as well as as cognitively and, and uh, I, I think that we have made a big mil- mileage <laughs> since mm. since and, and this COVID uh, really have uh, uh, brought to the forefront the need that existed for years uh, at the, the level of long term care, but now it's 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 being disclosed <laughs> and. Uh, yeah we have to uh, respond to this need because our older persons were neglected, I must confess. Mm -hmm. Sorry for saying this, but it was a reality and it was kind of uh, covered. No one really knew what was going on there, but they were understaffed, not properly cared for in in many places. Not all was respecting the standards. Uh, I know that there has been efforts of uh, making inspectors going and visit, uh, thanks to uh, Minister Marguerite Blais, um but but uh, i think the covid have made uh, an important uh, modification in, in the in the level and the quality of the care for, for these residents
0: and matt what about in the private residences what's what what's the protocol for visiting a loved one there
2: so usually you need to uh, get permission from the resident the the residents themselves and uh, uh, so we're starting to see more and more visits from loved ones, which is which is so important to, uh, for two reasons. One, for the quality of life for your loved one, but also they're the watchdog as well uh, for the residents. So uh, it's quite important that that people get into uh, the residence. I would also add for those that are considering to go into. A residence. They're just starting with tours. Most of the CHSLDs are, are doing virtual tours and they'll meet you outside the residence and give you a virtual tour inside. On the RPA side of things, they're starting to allow physical tours.
0: So my last point is really about the importance of being prepared, educated, and having a plan in place. So, you know, I, when I meet with families, I say, okay, this is plan A. So your plan A is, yes, you're caring for a loved one at home, but What's your plan B? So, especially with spouses, you know, if something happens to the primary caregiver, what's next? You know, what what well, what do you, what is your next choices? What's your next step? What if your children are living out of town and can't care for your loved ones? So, I really believe in being one step ahead at all times. So, perhaps the two of you could also, you know, um, piggyback on that uh, on that thought. Um, so, um, Barry, Matt, I-
1: yeah. yeah, very briefly, I would say that, that every person uh, who is losing autonomy, be it for physical reasons of, or cognition, uh, they should be connected with uh, the CLSC because uh, there is already a, a, a dossier open, uh, the person is in the system because starting things from a new always takes time. Whereas if they are already in the system, uh, at any point in time where, where there is a change, there is a. a let's say a catastrophe that happened, I will tell you, you know, a caregiver, most of them are uh, the same age as the older sick person, you know, and, and they can, things can happen to them. And then what? Uh, uh, the, the older person cannot suffice by, by themselves who is having dementia. So uh, they are known to the service and uh, to the community service, and this helps to to have a plan B. Uh, and the plan B should always include the fact that it reached a point where I can no longer, Uh, uh, give the appropriate care because myself I have my own ailments. Uh, It's too much. I mean, uh, I I give an example is that in the hospital, you know, we have three shifts a day. When we leave, uh, it's no longer our problem. When you are a caregiver is 24 hours a day and you can get exhausted.
0: So you have to have a plan B.
1: Plan B is a must.
0: that's a very important point, you brought it up also, but I don't don't think what people realize is that as a disease evolves, it will require 24 hours, seven days a week and three shifts. And so having that plan B, I think a lot of people don't wanna go there, they don't wanna face it, but I think you need to have a plan B in place just in case. Matt, how about you?
2: And to help that plan B is we're always encouraging proactive family conversations, even before trigger events try to have those conversations earlier as early as possible um and and look for what's going around in in your surroundings if something happened to a friend or a relative maybe that's the time to talk to them about oh what happens if you were in this situation because what we don't want is that situation which happens so often dr murray i'm sure you see all the time is as we discussed before that doctor and the discharge planner and the social worker saying they can't go back home You, you need to find something now and uh all of a sudden your plan b is now and if you're not prepared if you haven't done the research if you haven't had that clsc uh, um file open it's it's always best to get those things done
0: i've done uh, a couple of previous webcasts on really how to um you know how help caregivers manage the activities of daily living that are are at home, and Dr. Murray, you and I did one, a webcast on support and safety in the home. So I, I highly recommend that for those people watching who are not, not ready to consider transition, that they have a look at those these previous McGill Care's webcasts to understand, especially as the disease evolves, uh, what to expect. Thank you so much to both of you for being my guests today. Um, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank uh, you. I,
1: It was a um, a real pleasure, uh, Claire, and these topics are extraordinarily important for for the community because uh, there is a real need uh, and you are contributing to enrich their knowledge on these issues.
0: Oh, thank you. And I think education is really, really, really important, uh, especially during these times. Um, I'd like to uh, invite everybody next week, Wednesday, September 2nd, we will have two webcasts. McGill Cares will be uh, greeting Dr. Howard Bergman, professor of family medicine, uh, geriatrics and oncology, and assistant dean of international affairs at the faculty of medicine. And he will be discussing improving the quality of life and care of persons living with dementia and their caregivers. And then that evening, once again, we will be having the gift of song, a free virtual concert performed by a talented trio of jazz musicians. Um, For those people who may not be able to tune in to our webcast or even to the show, everything is available on demand uh, uh, at McGill Dementia uh, on our Dementia Education Program website. So once again, just to let everybody know that this webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you'd like to make a contribution or to have more information about our our program, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you have specific topics or questions that you would like to address, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for tuning in until next week, and please take care of yourselves and your loved ones. Thank you.